0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by NutriSlice, helping school nutrition programs who want to do a little more with their marketing communications. For more information, visit NutriSlice.com.
2: This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Inside School Food on the Heritage Radio Network. I am your host, Laura Stanley, and today we continue our celebration of Farm to School Month 2015 with another episode about some very innovative and creative work going on in Farm to School. I'm really excited to be bringing you a conversation about the introduction of Native American-raised buffalo to Native American schools. It's a topic that speaks... Profoundly and movingly to the Farm to School movement's loftiest goals, you know, like the promotion and protection of healthy food tradition, sustainable regional food systems, and food justice. Um, with us today are two representatives of the Intertribal Buffalo Council, which is a coalition comprised of 56 tribes spread across the Great Plains. Um, and Mountain Plains, the Southwest, West Coast, and Alaska. Uh, The Council was formed in 1990 to support tribal efforts to reintroduce buffalo to Indian country. It is now a federally chartered Indian organization with a collective herd of more than 15,000 animals. Uh, So Jim Stone is the council's executive director. He is an enrolled member of the Yankton Sioux Tribe. Uh, Jim has been working in Native American advocacy for more than 20 years, ever since graduating with a Bachelor of Science from the University of South Dakota. He's been with the uh, Intertribal Buffalo Council for the last eight years. Um, And Diane Amiat Seidel has been leading the council's uh, Buffalo to School Project for three years. She is an enrolled member of the Oglala Lakota Sioux from the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. Diane completed her undergraduate degree in American Indian Studies at Black Hills State University and her Master's in Lakota Leadership Management at Oglala Lakota College. So, Diane and Jim, I am so happy to have you on the show today. Welcome.
3: Thank you. welcome.
2: Um, you know, I, I have to say, I've had this topic on my radar for a long time. Uh, thank you, thanks to the strong encouragement of my friends at the National farm to school network but it wasn't until i started talking to both of you and then mining the literature that i found myself like like totally riveted by it and and what what sets this apart from every other farm to school story we've done on the show is the powerful powerful presence of buffalo as a centerpiece in so many native american cultures and the conviction that you have that its reinstatement is healing um, on many levels, so uh, Jim, I wonder if you could start it off. that off by saying a little bit more about that.
4: Well, the you know the buffalo and the bison and Native Americans have had a a relationship that that's usually described as being started since a uh, time immemorial, mm-hmm. and you, really the buffalo is the the centerpiece for a lot of tribal cultures' um, existence. Um, you know, it's often said that the tribes used every part of the buffalo. And the buffalo provided pretty much everything tribal people needed for living, and that that extends into even observing it and recreating the the social structures of the buffalo, um, the culture, the the ceremonies, the religion. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is is founded in in the buffalo and as a foundation. And so, you know, when when the buffalo were nearly exterminated at the turn of the century, you know, there was an absence for most tribes of about a hundred and fifty years, which you know, not too many societies experience. And so when the tribes start to bring Buffalo back, it's a resurgence and a re- reaffirmation of a lot of those, the previous uh, lifestyle, which, which you know, if you go back and look, um, Native Americans were, were very healthy people. Um, mm-hmm. Not a lot of the health problems they have now, you know, right now, just the high rates of obesity, diabetes, uh, cardiovascular disease, and a lot of it's diet-related from going from a, Hunter gather diet, um, heavier in proteins and lacking in carbohydrates to, you know, today's diet, which is primarily carbohydrates. So, mm-hmm. you know, there's a, there's a real, a lot of, a lot of different levels uh, of tribal life that, that's impacted by this return of the buffalo.
2: Right. And that's why I talked about healing on, on so many levels. Um, Diane, Jim talked about the um, really grave health issues that um, so many Native American communities are facing these days. Can you speak in particular to what what's going on with the kids?
3: With the uh, um, what's happening with yeah, the like an, you know, today. like what, you
2: know, in terms of you know the overweight issues and diabetes risk, okay. that kind of thing. Yeah.
3: Um, according to Schonkarts study, um, provided the, the obesity problem, there's over seventy five percent of the participants that were over, overweight, and mm-hmm. this is a study with just the Native Americans alone. Um, type two diabetes have been recognized, like Jim was saying as a major health issue for almost over forty years. Yeah. And um according to Melbourne, um, back in two thousand four when I done a study, the Pima Indians of um Arizona has been identified as having the highest rate of diabetes and it's in the world and it's it's um over fifty percent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And also the the heart disease, um it it's a big, big issue right now with our Native Americans. And um, there's been a study on a school in the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation where 75% of the Native students are um, diabetes, too, already. And this is from... Not eating proper and having these frozen foods that they've been.
2: That Diane, that's that's just kind of st- staggering. I mean, I had read that. Um Overall, Native American children in the US, um, it's projected that one out of two will develop type 2 diabetes, but what you're saying is that it's more extreme in some communities. I've also re- heard type 2 diabetes referred to as the new smallpox in, 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 in terms of the peril. Um, it's put the Native American people into so, um, well, you know, we'll talk a little later about the importance, sort of, the nutritional value of the bison. Um, um, but, but, Jim, I just, you know, I, I think what a lot of listeners don't know about is, I mean, I think they know that that uh, Native American life was hollowed out um, in so many ways, and and the disappearance of the buffalo was was. You know, a, a huge part of that—not the major one—but what they don't know about is that the reemergence, um, and and I—I I wonder if you could talk about that and the role of the council and, and you know getting that to happen.
4: Okay, yeah. You know, as you kind of mentioned, uh, the intertribal Buffalo Council was—we were formed as the intertribal Bison Council starting about 1990, uh, effectively become an organization in 1992 with with a handful of tribes that really was spawned from the Native American Fish and Wildlife Society, which, you know, is a larger tribal organization geared more towards restoration and management of wildlife. And there were so many tribes that were interested in Buffalo that they decided it it warranted its own group because, you know, our tribes are trying to bring back uh, Buffalo and manage them as wildlife, which Mm -hmm. when you look at kind of the land use policies and different things, it makes it a pretty complicated effort. So, you know, we rapidly grew from a handful of tribes. I think right now with some new memberships that we're going to indoctrinate um, in December, I think we're up to 60 tribes in 19 states. Um, oh, 60. You know, like you said, that's, that's better yeah, than I so said. Yeah. Every year we have a few more tribes that, mm-hmm. that grow and join the organization uh, and establish herds. Um, you know, looking at basically the restoration of a tribal buffalo culture, and you know, most of those are kind of pretty much centered around consumption being one of the major components of it. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. I, you know, when we spoke earlier, I was particularly interested in what you had to say about a, a kind of contrasting idea or point of view over buffalo uh, between older tribe members and the younger generation. You know, what, why is there a generational divide here?
4: You know, some uh, a lot of what had happened, you know, at the turn of the century and, and the attempts to you know, assimilate tribal members. You, you had a lot of um, forced schooling through either Catholic schools or government-run schools where basically the, the whole thing was to try to remove the, their culture from them, the language, um, get them away from doing things in the old ways and, and make them farmers. And so as a part of that, there's there's generations of people, older generations, that you know, it's been ingrained in their mind that eating anything wild is is dirty. That it's mm-hmm. it's not as high quality food as what you would get as beef. You know, the, the comparison to beef and buffalo, and so even now that 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 I guess I would call it brainwashing is still pretty strong. Where you know a lot of them have to be convinced that that a return to a traditional diet is actually beneficial, and and I couldn't really understand that myself as. As a younger person, but after I educated myself a little bit more on the history of a lot of our tribes then then you could kind of see the roots of it and and now, you know, as we place buffalo back out there's mm-hmm. there's been really just the the youth take to it, you know they understand it but but at times it's it's not as simple as most people would think it would be
2: right right and when when well, later on, when we talk to Diane about how it's introduced in schools, we'll talk about that because the kids aren't always. Completely at the ready. Um, you know, you, 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 were, you were talking about the return to um, more traditional foodways as a pathway to health. Um, so it's not just bison. Um, you know, and, and in reading about your work, I came across this term tribal food system. Can, can you explain what that means and, and, you know, where bison fits in?
4: You know, with us, we kind of we kind of see Buffalo as, you know, because it is such an iconic figure that allows us to, to generate resources, whether it's grand dollars, to, to kind of look at, you know, how would you recreate access to, to tribal foods, traditional foods, cultural foods, locally raised foods. And so, you know, we kind of paved the pathway for a lot of other things to follow it. And really you know, for a lot of the people, even on the reservations, they they don't really know what what is around them, mm-hmm. you know, as far as looking at the traditional, the cultural foods that they were raised on, you know, the having access to wild asparagus, the wild mushrooms, on um, the turnips, the different oh. things that, that are actually there that, that are a resource which could be put into a food system. You mm-hmm. know, we, we have the school lunch programs are a food system. You have, you know, local convenience stores, a, very few have fully developed uh, grocery stores um, primarily go through convenience stores so there's there's different levels of the food systems that you know that are open for the introduction of of cultural foods that mm-hmm. haven't been explored yet and that's kind of what we're working on.
2: Right, right, right. Um and and I know that part of um the uh, council's mission involves helping members develop strategy strategies for, you know, economic stability in buffalo production. You know, it, it, it's you it can't just have a herd. You got to be able to pay for the presence of the herd. I mean, so what, part of what you're doing is um, helping them understand how they might market um, buffalo into the supply chain off reservation. Um, how does that work?
4: Well, you know. If you look at Indian country in general, you know there's there's very limited models of economic success, and so what we've had to do is basically you know start from ground zero pretty much and and identify what some of the limiters are, what are some of the barriers you know in working with something like buffalo you know we we've had to overcome some of the the historic um i guess thoughts that while well, u s d a inspection the need for u s d a inspection mm pretty much eliminates the ability of getting buffalo meat there, you know, um, through Diane's work. And a lot of this is Diane's work that, you know, she spent years working through the the labeling and the processing systems to, to find out that, no, actually, you know, you can do it this way. You know, now we've pushed as far as to get a memo from USDA talking about how state inspected buffalo can be incorporated into school lunch programs. and And a lot of that is Diane's work of, you know, just, looking at the barriers that other people had had said existed and then pushing through, you know, to ensure that, you know, we can go out and we can get product, Buffalo from a tribal, um, from a tribe to processing mm-hmm. under, you know, the labeling and the processing requirements needed, whether it's USDA or state inspected with labels, with the certifications, the insurances, the liability, and get the product back out at the local level which we hope is kind of, you know, cutting their teeth in the business world, which will enable them to, at some point, you know, access markets outside the reservation, which may carry a, a higher price point.
2: Exactly. It's you a know, luxury, right now we're marketing a the programs <laughs> at
4: prices they can pay, so.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, the, you refer to the um, the recent, um, you know, memo from USDA allowing, you um, A Native uh, American raised buffalo to be inspected in state facilities. I know that was a huge coup, and especially for the farm to school program. Um, So, so you know, uh, so you're you're looking to hopefully uh, bring in more revenue by by um, having um, selling buffalo off reservation. But where does school purchasing? fit in, um, you know, economically, and or where would you like to see it fit Because I know this is still in the early stage. And maybe, Diane, you want to take that.
3: Um, right now, what I'd like to see is the tribe uh, be being able to generate funds within the tribe, where they'd be able to, um, the tribe would be able to sell uh, buffalo meat to the school, and the school would pay the tribe to just keep generating funds within the tribe. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So in other words, it's a, a, um, a self-sustaining system supported in part by outside sales um, at a higher price of the buffalo.
3: Yes, and then um, some of the tribes, they they do not have enough buffalo um, to to supply the schools. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping in the future we could work with like Cisco Foods and Reinhardt and um, where the schools would be able to have access to order buffalo meat.
2: Wow, and it is now listed um, in USDA Foods as a as a commodity item, or has that not happened yet?
3: Um, some schools that I have talked to, it, it they order it from Reinhardt, mm-hmm. but the prices are so high that they cannot afford it. I see, yeah. And with the tribes, what they've been doing is um, selling buffalo meat to the schools for the price of beef. Mm-hmm and they're not really making any money but they're helping the kids become healthier.
2: So right, right. So it's it's an evolving uh business model and I guess it varies tremendously from one reservation to the next, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah, um, So, Jim and Diane, I'd like to take a pause now for station break. And when we come back, let's talk more specifically about what's going on in the schools you work with. Um, you're listening to Inside School Food, and today's episode is about the Intertribal Buffalo Council and its role in introducing Native American-raised buffalo to lunch trays in Native American schools. We'll be right back.
1: Mm-hmm. mm <laughs> Today's program was brought to you by Nutrislice. Nutrislice wants to see you succeed. They help school nutrition programs who want to do a little more with their marketing communications. Nutrislice is all about helping people increase their nutrition IQ. Their products are designed to engage, educate, and inspire greater levels of personal wellness. Whether you're interested in communicating the virtues of your nutrition program, upping your game in the fight against childhood obesity, saving money, or becoming more innovative, NutraSlice has the tools for you. They can help you reduce food waste by getting kids excited about eating healthy foods. Is your program serving healthy foods but not getting the credit it deserves? NutraSlice can help you communicate all the great things you're doing to parents, students, school administrators, and the community. They can also help you gain critical customer insights to your business. They've worked with the most innovative school nutrition programs in the country, big and small, and their experience speaks for itself. Get in touch today to see what Nutrislice can do for you. That's Nutrislice.com.
2: Uh, welcome back to Inside School Food. Um, we are uh, speaking with uh, Diane Emiat Seidel and Jim Stone of the Intertribal Buffalo Council about their very exciting work in bringing uh, Native American-grown buffalo to schools um, across Indian country. Um, and Diane is uh, heading up the, the farm-to-school effort. Uh, so, Diane, I am... I, um, I think I think we, we talked about this earlier. You know, everyone listening today knows about USDA's MyPlate, which is this graphic showing the breakdown of a healthy American meal on a plate with quadrants for fruit, vegetables, grains, protein, plus a little circle to one side to symbolize a glass of milk. Um, you favor an alternative that was created for Native Americans called the Food... Uh, I'm sorry, the this, this Sacred Food Medicine Wheel. Tell me if I got that wrong. Um, c- can you describe what that is?
3: Okay, the Sacred Food Medicine Wheel was created by Kirby Kante. Um, she's an Ogallala Sioux um, dietitian. Mm-hmm. And um, what it is, is it, it has the colors of the four directions red, white, yellow, and black.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And the directions. Um, Talk about like each color means something. Where the the buffalo versus beef is what the um, and potatoes versus potato chips, mm-hmm. water versus soda pop, and fresh fruits and ve- vegetables versus the uh, commodities where the can um, the canned fruit and syrup. And,
2: right. Right. And so the, Um, So four quadrants, water, which is so interesting because that that doesn't show up as a food on the USDA version. So water, and then another quadrant for fruits, fresh fruits and vegetables, um, in contrast to the uh, canned items that were for so many decades supplied to Native Americans living on reservations. Um, And then bean, corn, and potatoes as a single category. And then finally, buffalo gets its own Category. Um, So I was fascinated by that. I mean, why the prominence of buffalo as a nutritional um, element in this wheel? I mean, you know, how do you, how is it you regard buffalo as a health food?
3: Buffalo has a lot of vitamin E and iron, Mm -hmm. and it's low in calories, and it it helps with heart disease and diabetes.
2: Yeah, and as and, 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 uh, it says in your, re- you have a, written a wonderful newsletter, which I'm going to post on today's sh- sh- uh, show page, and uh, what you said was, he, buffalo meat was the main diet of the Plains Indians who never had cancer, never had heart disease or heart attacks, and lived to be 85 to 90 years of age.
3: Correct, until right. they got refined to yeah. the reservation Right. 1868 and that's when they were forced to eat beef rather than buffalo, and they were introduced to the commodities.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I should add that, of course, the buffalo is completely grass-fed with all of the nutritional benefits that come, come with that, so it really is a, a health food. Um, so, so let's talk about your program. <laughs> so exciting. Um, I understand that it's it's currently funded by a grant from the Administration for Native Americans. Is that right?
3: That was the ANA grant. Uh Um, That one is is now over. It was over September 28th. But um, that grant is to help incorporate buffalo meat into the schools and the tribal entities. And at the end of the grant, I I was supposed to have eight schools um, with buffalo meat in the school system. Uh But between the ANA and the Farm to School grant, Inter-Tribal Buffalo Council has been working with 29 schools. Wow. And most of the schools are in the state of South Dakota that do have Buffalo meat in mm-hmm. the school system. Mm-hmm.
2: And ha- um, have most of them been able to hold on to the program now that the grant period is passed?
3: Yes. I've been doing some um, following up with the schools, and um, most of them still have Buffalo meat in the school system. Some of them had to cut back from once a week mm-hmm. to twice a month because of the herd, Um, but otherwise, uh, and then the school, or the tribes do a a roundup only once a a year, Mm -hmm. so um, they have to try to get enough buffalo meat to supply the school for the nine months
2: right right that that was something interesting that that i wanted to to actually ask both of you about that the the way that buffalo is harvested is compatible with tradition so in most cases there's a roundup only once a year um and and that does complicate what you're doing um and yet maintaining tradition is is critical otherwise what's the point um Jim, how does that affect the buffalo's marketability outside the reservation?
4: Well, you know, it does make it a little more difficult, but you know, like a lot of, I guess, business, you just build around it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just uh, identify the ways that you can market the product. Um, as you said, it's a grass-fed product, you know, which which carries a lot of high premiums, you know, with, within the. The context of tribes view of grass-fed you also have the buffalo which is when observed is out there grazing on a lot of the traditional medicinal plants Mm -hmm. that that we used to use so when you're talking about you know some of these plants i know there's there's plants out there that that we make tea out of that that have been shown to have antibiotic and anti-carcinogenic properties And, and when you observe the buffalo they're out there eating the same kind of you know eating the same kind of plants and so you know that that's something we're very aware of you know a lot of times with the schools um, when they utilize a state-inspected facility they'll they'll utilize a, a field harvest mm-hmm. um, you know and, and most field harvests are usually attended by the school kids mm-hmm. so they actually get to go out and observe you know the ceremonies the songs that are done conducted during a harvest and participate in you know some of the the ritual and ceremony that goes with it
2: that, that is one of the most amazing aspects of this program. You've, Jim, you've kind of jumped ahead. I was going to save that for the grand I'm finale, but, but that's okay. Let, let's talk about it um, because um, Diane in, in her wonderful uh, newsletter report about some of these pilot schools talks about one school in particular where um, this has been going on the longest. It's called the um, the Loneman School, um, and it's in Oglala, South Dakota. And uh, Diane, I understand they've been menuing buffalo for like something like six years, right?
3: Yes, um, I do believe a little bit longer. But um, just like Jim was saying, that's exactly how the the school does um, their harvest. Mm-hmm. Um, they they do it with the kids, and um, they do ceremonies. I, I then I interview with them, and each year it's different. Um, the whatever classes that. Um, participate in the harvest, um, they get the, the buffalo hide and all the kids, they learn how to um, do brain tanning mm-hmm. and they get a paint to paint the hide and also hang it in their classroom.
2: It's amazing. So, so basically, and, and there's more to it, Diana, as you write about in your report. That, that, you know, the evening before the, the harvest, um, there there is actually um, a, a sweat lodge ceremony for both the boys yeah. and the girls separately. Yep, yep. and um, traditional prayers offered for the harvest. Um, and then after the animals taken, there's another set of of you know ceremony, ceremonial prayers and activities. Um, and and yeah, uh, uh, what I read there is that the children are taught how to skin the animals. That's still going on. Yes, that's amazing. Um, and then there's another teacher at the school who's skilled in tanning. It's a fifth grade teacher who um, works with them on that. And then they, so they tan the hide and they paint it and then they have it um, in their classroom. It's amazing.
3: Okay. <laughs> and, yeah, and this is how the um, tribes. And or tribal students and the tribes are keeping their culture alive,
2: right, and right, and
3: healthy at the same time. So.
2: Right, um, yeah. So that that was very moving. There was another one in your newsletter that was very exciting to me, and that was um, the Taos Day School, um, where the Taos Pueblo elders, who traditionally care for the community's herd. Joined the kids in a kind of celebration in honor of the first buffalo meal, and, and you were you were there that day. What was that like?
3: Yes, that was that was um, different. Um, like I, working with all the different tribes, they all participate different, and um, the the leaders here were. It was very interesting. Um, we had a news crew there, and I've never had a the whole council. Participate mm-hmm. like the way Taos New Mexico tribe did with their war chiefs.
2: Right, right. So they they're, they're called war chiefs, um, and for for the kids, it must have been really invested with meaning to see these you know people come and join them at school f- for this. Um, and then um, there's a, there's another one um, called the Four Winds Tribal School. Um, where um, apparently, from my from your account, it sounded like the children weren't that much exposed to bison before you um, came to school with this thing called a buffalo box, which is part of what you do in teaching them about what the buffalo is and about buffalo tradition. Tell us about that the buffalo bro- box curriculum.
3: Okay, um, the buffalo box has has um, everything that our ancestors used. Uh, in the, like the buffalo bladder to carry the water and um, the horn cap for the spoon or the bowl. Um, and I bring the buffalo into the classroom and mm-hmm. I explain to the children or the students on how our ancestors utilized every single part of the buffalo. And then um, they get to come and feel and, and then I explain it to them about um, buffalo meat. Mm-hmm. How um, how lucky they are to be able to eat buffalo meat um, because it cost a lot of money. And many years ago, that's all our ancestors ate. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
3: that day, um, my assistant and I helped the cooks make buffalo pizza for the kids, <laughs> and the kids just loved it. They they just they didn't notice the difference. Yeah. So So, it it was a fun day that day. Yeah.
2: So for those children, this was their first taste of buffalo, and it seems like Native American kids, just like kids everywhere else in the country, love pizza. So this was a good way to introduce it to them. It sounds like. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Um, And then, and then there was um, the St. Francis School, which is in the Rosebud Sioux community. where the school cooks made the decision to take a stealth approach they replaced beef with buffalo in um scratch cooked soup and spaghetti and chili and sloppy joes without telling the kids um and you know at what point did they tell the kids that they were eating buffalo and what was the reaction
3: the day that i and um a I could get again, the newspaper crew arrived, and everybody was asking why we were there, taking pictures, and <laughs> interviewing the kids and the staff and we told them because they were eating buffalo meat, and they they did not believe that they were eating buffalo meat. Um, one thing I got to give um, these cooks a round of applause because they they're doing such a good job cooking buffalo meat
2: mm-hmm. uh,
3: the the ladies. Um, that I talked to, they said they have been cooking it for over a month, and the kids and the staff had no idea that they were even eating buffalo meat.
2: Right. Well, and then, of course, it's a learning curve for the staff because this is a very different kind of product than beef. It doesn't shed fat. It cooks d- differently, faster, yes,
3: right? It's a lot. it's a lot leaner, and it, it's not as greasy. Right. And right. like the cooks are saying, they, they love cooking with buffalo meat because it's a... Um, there's not a big mess to clean up. There's right. no grease splattered all over like yeah. beef.
2: So all all the schools we're talking about are, are very small. I forgot to say that, right? We're we're talking about schools where there's just a few hundred kids at the most.
3: Yes. Um probably four wind school is one of the largest ones. They have like I do believe at the time they had six hundred and twenty five students. Yeah, well that's uh, most-
2: that's pretty small by national standards. So it, yeah. it does sound like the um, the food service staff can take up cooking um, more easily because they're not dealing with thousands of, of kids at a time. So that's an advantage. Um, so so Diane, I, I wonder if you could just kind of comment on the on the future of the program. It sounds like um, even though the funding periods runs out, you're pretty optimistic that it will become self-sustaining over time
3: well working with the um, USDA uh, they agreed to help um, schools once they if they purchase buffalo meat that they will get reimbursed and they do not have to utilize a state or a USDA plant they could use a state plant
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so
3: a lot of the schools are really excited about it but because before they had to use a USDA plant, in order to get um, refunded through USDA. And in the state of South Dakota, we only have one USDA slaughter plant. And so the reservations, some of them, like Lower Borough, for for example, they are like three, four hours away. They would have to haul their buffalo up, which they still do, um, and have the buffalo processed, and then worry about trying to get the meat back to yeah. School, so,
2: so this is this is a big cost saving and a big convenience. So, hopefully, that will grow the program out. Um, do you can you project over the next five years? You have a sense of how much this will grow or how much you hope it will grow?
3: I'm hoping it will continue on. Um, like I was saying in one of my interviews, I'm hoping that Michelle, Michelle Obama will um, be able to hear this and. Help us and work with us, and so we could get this throughout the whole the whole United States. Not only tribal schools, but also um, public schools. And and there's there is a lot of buffalo out there, Um, uh, not just tribal buffalo, Mm -hmm. but um, Ted Turner, for example, and other um, ranchers that's raising buffalo. So hopefully, we'll get it out.
2: That that the would be United States. yeah yeah I, I, I think I think we could all benefit tremendously from that. Um, well, I I wish you luck, and I'm really looking forward to tracking um, your progress both with the um, farm to school program and and with the Intertribal Buffalo Council's work. On the whole. Um, so Jim Stone and Diane Amiat Seidel, many thanks for introducing us to the work of the Intertribal Buffalo Council. You've given us a very different and exceptionally exciting window um, on the farm sc- to school movement today. Um, If you want to learn about other schools in the program and see the sacred food medicine wheel, I have posted a link um, on insideschoolfood.com to Diane's terrific report about Buffalo to School. It includes lots of beautiful pictures. Um, And finally, for for context about tribal food systems, um, I found this really riveting um, in-depth report from Eco hawk consulting that was released just this summer it's called feeding ourselves food access health disparities and pathways to healthy native american communities and if you really want to dig in that will be on um, on the page today too um, i want to wrap up today with a public service announcement um, the lifetime foundation in collaboration with the chef Anne and Whole Kids Foundations, is recruiting applicants for its new school food support initiative. Um, this is a unique technical assistance program for a select small group of school districts, that, um, and it will include a workshop for food service directors, on-site assessment, and strategic planning, along with peer-to-peer collaboration. It's a great opportunity to get help and join Lifetime's growing community of practice. Um, I'll I'll post a link to that um, on the Inside School Food Facebook page. Um, Applications are due October 30th, so move fast if you're interested. Um, You've been listening to Inside School Food. I'm Laura Stanley. Um, Our break music today was from Keto. Uh, My show's theme is by Tax Star. And hang on, because we're about to play a clip from... The Farm Report, another great podcast offered by Heritage Radio Network.
5: The beauty of edible insects is that we mitigate a lot of the, the potential harms that we've seen so far. So, for instance, if your concern is a zoonoses or a, an animal to human disease, things like mad cow disease, avian flu has been particularly pertinent recently here in the U.S.
1: Aspire USA's Robert Nathan Allen joins episode 247 of the Farm Report to discuss the low risks involved with eating insects, especially given that it is a new and controlled industry, as well as the environmental benefits of doing so.
5: Insects showed are genetically removed from humans, but there, there is no risk of that sort of transmission from animal to human. So right there we have a very big benefit. The insects don't have to be raised using hormones or antibiotics, which is another very pertinent concern in the livestock industry. The amount of antibiotics that we have to use and the effects that has on the population, we don't have that problem. And then when we're talking about regulation, again, this is a brand new industry and the industry is ahead of the regulations right now because you know, organizations like the FDA and the USDA, they move at a pace that that is very cautious. And the industry as a whole has been very good about being in constant touch with our municipal and our state health departments, our federal regulatory agencies like FDA and USDA, to make sure that we're abiding by any and all potentially applicable rules. We follow all of the standard good manufacturing practices. We have a a, a HASPA plan in place, which is quickly becoming the the industry standard. And, And like I said, we're open to working with those regulatory agencies not just to make sure that we're doing it right, but also to make sure that the rules that are put into place are applicable and effective and don't allow the bar to start too low. One of the the early guidance we got from the FDA is that food products made for humans cannot use insects that are wild harvested or grown for feed, for lizard food or for bait. And so I think that's, that's a perfect example of the FDA, while not having any official rules, giving very clear guidance to the industry to say that if you're going to use this as a human food, it has to be treated like a human food. And so we've worked with those agencies so that when those rulings do become official, it will be difficult for somebody to introduce a low quality product into the industry. And I think it's, at the end of the day, that's a good safeguard for consumers.
1: This was an excerpt from episode 247 of The Farm Report. Got your stomach rumbling? Head on over to The Farm Report show page on heritageradionetwork.org for all archived episodes, extra bonus content, and more. The Farm Report is also available on iTunes. Heritage Radio Network is a member-supported nonprofit organization broadcasting over 30 live shows a week. To learn more and donate, visit our website or connect with us on iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram for more. Thanks for listening.